this is Shift Run Stop. It's um, a fun podcast about games and cultural stuff and comedy and interviews. Shift Run Stop, episode nine. Episode nine is going to be full of musical people and music mm. and niceness. Yeah, kind of technical artists. Of a definite, definite musical persuasion, yeah. and we've got Dave back with some snacks, and he's here already. Hello. I, I am. I, I've, I've got here nice and early. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Hello. I mean, I'm just, I'm just rummaging my in my pockets what the snacks are, but, and because, <laughs> because you know, because of the time of year, mm. they're Easter themed. Of course, they are. <laughs> come back later in the podcast <laughs> and check those out. Easter snacks. Looking forward to that. First, we've got uh, two guests coming up today. We've got Paul B. Davis. He is a lecturer at Goldsmiths College, but is a retro music maker, mm-hmm. uh, famous for using NESs, NESs, yeah. NES computers, NES systems. NES-I. NES-I. <laughs> NES-U, uh, in making music. Uh, and Sarah Anglis is the other guest. Today. Sarah Anglis. Uh, cool. Who's, yeah, similarly a kind of uh, geeky music maker. She makes mm-hmm. mu- musical robots. She plays the theremin, plays the saw. What's mm. brilliant. And she's done stuff with uh, Adam Curtis on It Felt Like a Kiss. And we've got an art exhibition that me and Dave went to. Yes. <laughs> where we looked at weird... How would you describe him, Dave? Well, we were... We were discussed, like, well, Rue Ru said that he's already, he's already listened back to the, uh, the audio evidence and, to, and claims it's the most technical, the most, the the most, most functional. functional review. It's almost as if we'd, we'd gone and looked at some paintings and just described the kind of colours that we used <laughs> and, and the frames. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, like it was interesting, and yeah. hopefully, with that description of the components, you'll be able to construct similar like, something similar yes. at home. Well, we should welcome Paul B. Davis. <laughs> Hello, Paul B. Davis. I know about Paul from um, being a fan of the eight-bit construction set stuff and the um, the beige programming ensemble from a few years ago now. Hmm. And um, at the moment, you're um, teaching at Goldsmiths, aren't you? Yeah, you? in the fine art department. Yeah. So. so you do loads of stuff. Yeah, I try to keep it uh, mixed up because I, I don't know, perhaps I'm a bit ADD, so I like to... Uh, right, yeah, you'll get, fit in here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, pretty much every piece that I do um, uses a computer in some fashion. Okay. And I would consider, I mean, video game co- consoles are computers. Mm-hmm. And the idea with a computer is that it's inherently open source. Mm. Like, there is no way... like the. The thing exists to be programmed, basically. Mm. That's all it does. You know, if you have a game system, say, with a, say on an old Nintendo mm. cartridge, there's security screws and things are in ROM, and that has actually nothing to do with getting access to the machine on any kind of conceptual level. It's just a bit of a pain in the ass that Nintendo puts in there so you don't uh, make them less money. <laughs> so in terms of, like, what the machine is supposed to do, mm. then... Um, Nintendo has no say over it, you know what mm. I mean? So, my whole thing with these Nintendo cartridges was just to take a computer that I saw that was uh, locked up and just unlock it because mm. um, they're really cheap and game consoles are the sort of cheapest audio and video generation systems that anyone has. Yeah. They're subsidized um, and they're like an art delivery medium waiting to be utilized. So, mm. I mean, why not? Yeah. <laughs> um, and what are some of the ways that you go about doing that? I mean, taking the NES as an example, how, how can you hack it? How can you open it up and, and get it to do things that it wasn't, that the Nintendo didn't it's want to do? It's actually really easy. All you have to do is, um, 
Well, here I got one. Oh, <laughs> one. with him. Oh, I didn't dare to hope. <laughs> that's very exciting. Oh, that's so cool. The cartridges are massive. I had a little Game Boy Advance cartridge yeah, in my purse for ages, and I didn't chunky. even notice because it was so tiny. And then you just look at it against that, and it was about that big. The only well, I, I didn't bring my special screwdriver, but there's uh, <laughs> three screws in the back that gets you easy access to the board. Um, and then these ROM chips are standard size, so all you have to do is, um, yeah, just buy some EEPROMs that are the same size as these mm -hmm. these guys. And again, these are standard components. Um, and then all you have to do after that is put the code that you wrote on the EEPROM and then put it in there, and then it just plays. How did you discover this pool, by the way? I was always interested in computers. I didn't have one until I was about... Fourteen or something, mm. thirteen or fourteen. So I considered myself the late starter, but I tried to catch up quickly. I was doing some programming, and my course was a lot of like electronic music and composition stuff. So we were doing mm. like C Sound and Max MSP and Super Collider and stuff like that, um, which is all lovely. But um, I was looking for like a more direct um, connection to the sound hardware, mm. and I don't know what happened. I was just probably online one day, and then somehow remembered these machines. And then I noticed that, oh right, when you turn them on, you get a basic prompt. So it's like there's no AOL icons or anything. It's mm. like the computer is directly asking you to talk to it in something like only a step removed from its native language, yeah. basically. Yeah. And I thought, that's cool. I'm in computers. I'm in the mainframe. So we have with us uh, this week Sarah Anglis, um, who's joined us all the way from the south, the south coast. She's come yeah. in through the, the worst conditions for 40 years to be with us. Uh, welcome. Hello. <laughs> it's, it's very good to, to have you here. Now, Sarah, you uh, are an amazingly creative uh, musician and performer and engineer, and you, you, you make musical robots, you know, and it, it, from reading about your career and seeing what you're... Uh, creative output over the last last few years has been. It seems like there's nothing you, you don't turn your hand to in the area of music. Yeah, I mean, I'm, funnily enough, I'm a classically trained musician, so I'm one of these people that I can sort of quite easily pick up on how to play musical instruments. And um, I'm not a particularly good engineer. I'm a sort of a have-a-go engineer. But mm. we live in an age with things like Arduino, where if you're like me and you're looking for a, a quick way to do things very um, easily... You can, if you've got an idea in your head, you can sort of have a go. So I make lots of what I'd call lash-ups mm. on stage. So you'll see me, and they're literally, literally held together with cable ties, sort of instruments that I make. But they play, and that's part of the theatre of it. Think, oh my God, what she brought this week? Is it going to get through the set? And the magic <laughs> of it is that they do actually get through the set. And actually, they're a little bit less precarious than, than you might think, you know, because they, they get stuck in the back of a car, move to another gig another week, and they come out again. So mm. it's all things like bells and robots and things. And you've done some stuff with as Infrasonics as well? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the jury's still out on Infrasound. I have to say that, because Infrasound's become... It was interesting, because that, that was some work that I did ages ago um, with um, a whole lot of other people, including Richard Wiseman, a psychologist, mm. Mm. and Kieran O'Keefe. And... Um, and also the National Physical Laboratory, who were really helpful getting the sort of physics right on that. And the thing about infrasound was that it's this sort of, um, it's a, you know, sort of internet myth extraordinaire, this thing about the brown note 
Oh, do you know about the brown note? I don't know. So called because I've what it does to you inside is you play it. It was on Mythbusters. Yes, yes. Yes. Complete and utter. Oh, sorry, complete and utter bilge. Because oh, well, I can I can say that I have stood in front of a brown note maker and and your had, trousers remain yeah, unbrown. Yeah, me and all my clothing survived <laughs> to tell the tale. But what is interesting about infrasound is that. Um, you know, if you look at old physics textbooks, you know, stuff that you used to see at school, they talked about, oh, you can hear sound between 20 hertz, like sound that vibrates 20 times a second, really deep notes just off the end of the piano, up to 20,000. And it was almost as though the stuff below that was just sort of stuff that you ignored, a bit like, you know, infrared or something, you know, stuff that you didn't talk about. And, you know, you didn't, you didn't experience as a human. Mm. But... This is what I found really interesting, was that if you go around cathedrals all around Europe, and in fact all around the world, you'll find pipes in there that have been built so big, they're creating infrasound. And, so the, and these things were built you know, from the time of Bach, so it's way before anybody thought about these sorts of issues. So, the, so sort of beg the question, if you can't hear this stuff and it's just like the junk noise, or you know, it's either imperceptible or maybe it's nothing more than the sort of hum you get out of a big chimney or something like that. Mm. Um, why would somebody go to the lengths of building dirty, great big organ pipes that make it? Mm. So that's, that was where I started from. Then when I spoke to, um, when, I, when I looked into the sort of uh, scientists studying paranormal phenomena, I found, or seemingly paranormal phenomena, I should say, I found that there was some very, very tentative evidence that in places where people felt spooked, you know, like the oldie haunted room, um, there may have been infrasound present in some cases. Mm. And the infrasound, there's this particular chap called Vic Tandy, this physicist, who um, was in a very spooky lab and he discovered that there was infrasound coming from a faulty ceiling fan that was sort of acting strangely. Oh, wow. Yeah, and when he switched the fan off, the spooky feelings went away, and when he switched it on, they came back. And so he That's started... That's a brilliant trick. Yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> so he started to sort of put forward the suggestion that perhaps infrasound was one of these things that when it's in a room, you're not necessarily aware of it on a mm. very uh, strong level. It's like on the threshold of perception, mm. but somehow it might have been affecting your emotions. So that's where the work started, and then we just tried to find out whether it, there was an effect. And I'd say the results were positive, but tentative, and um, I'm actually doing a follow-up with Richard again and with Punch Drunk. Oh, brilliant, yeah. In a few months, in a few weeks, actually, yeah. We're actually going to go into the lab, do some really, you know, formal studies in the lab, and hopefully get something peer-reviewed out of it, even if it just says, sorry doesn't really do much at all. <laughs> <laughs> do you do much work with Punch Drunk? Uh, I've just done the one thing, actually. They contacted me because of infrasound, yeah. and then we got working on a, a very odd little special effect, which um, I'm sworn to secrecy about, but was in the show that Adam was talking about last week. It, called, the, um, it Felt Like a Kiss in, it felt in like Manchester. It Felt Like a Kiss, yes. Oh, brilliant. And it wasn't, it wasn't actually due to be in that show. We, were sort of, we got some money to do some R&D on sound and other things, and uh, we came up with an effect between us all. Um, that was so sort of ooh really good, sort of tantalising that we that they decided at the very last minute to throw it into the it felt like a kiss show and it appears somewhere mm. in the show so I won't say too much because <laughs> it might be coming to London but we're still still sort of perfecting it and um, yeah it's really exciting I can imagine it having all sorts of uses and I'm sure we'll be talking about it more once uh, you know once they say they want the cat out of the bag I don't know how much <laughs> they want to say about it oh that's really exciting. Yeah, that's really-
Is it snack time? <laughs> it's always snack time. It's, it's snack, snack time! time. <laughs> yes, and uh, as I was uh, uh, saying, um, it's January, and of course, Mm. Traditionally, that means that that means uh, well, not only the sell-off of the selection boxes, uh, which mar- marvelous bargains. I, I could have bought an enormous tube of Smarties that I got for twenty-six p. in Asda. How big is this tube of Smarties? Oh, oh, you know, it's not it's not the size of, a, of, an, of an outstretched arm or anything. <laughs> it's it's not, really good value. It's not the famous yard of Smarties. I bought a yard of Jaffa cakes. It's only a yard. A they yard is the perfect size. <laughs> But now, now, of course, nowadays, of course, with your health and safety, it probably, it probably says, ideal for sharing with 240 people. <laughs> <laughs> but like, anyway, we'll come to that. Yes, and, uh, and there's always a little bit of controversy on the internet. People going, oh, I saw Easter things before Christmas. Yeah. Get over it. <laughs> you don't like that. No, well, it's because, uh, obviously, you know, wake up and smell the Vatican. Um, Easter... Easter Easter occurs at different times during the spring. Yes. So if Easter is early, and um, and Easter's moderately early this year, it's Easter's at the start of April. If Easter's quite early, then nowadays, like uh, shops consider that a uh, a carte blanche yeah. to start advertising eggs before Christmas. But do they not realise that it, presumably it doesn't help at all? Because you're not going to buy Easter eggs gets you in, before Christmas. Gets you in an Eastery mood. <laughs> yes, that's what that's what everyone's thinking about on December the twenty fourth. I, I well, you know, I, you know, obviously the tragedy is there isn't a product that that, that yet that, 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 that has a dual purpose that has that <laughs> yeah. way, way yeah. that quite and you know Terry's chocolate orange is almost there. If they just started making it egg shaped after Boxing Day, mm-hmm. then they'd be on the winner, wouldn't mm. they? So, but and yeah, and again, so and are they are they exciting this year's Easter snacks? Let's have a look. Well, of course, you've probably seen this already. The uh, Cadbury's Dairy Milk Caramel Bunny, and you oh. get you get two bunnies and in a open, open it up. And notice the nutritional information is per bunny. Per bunny. <laughs> and um, you will like. Of course, you're familiar with uh, Cad- the Caramel Bunny. The, uh, she's quite, yes. she's quite style and fashion icon. She's, uh, she's an attractive, the, curvy the lady. 1980s. <laughs> I'm gonna break, break the caramel bunny open. No, well, see if you can guess what they're, you're, you're familiar with Cadbury's caramel, as originally advertised by the yeah, bunny. Of course. <laughs> um, this is Cadbury's caramel, but in bunny form. So it's basically exactly the same as it? Cadbury's yes, caramel. it is. Um, it's good though. Do you know the only thing unusual about it? You're going to say something weird about the chocolate that no. I haven't spotted. No, no, there is nothing unusual about it. Oh, no. it's <laughs> it was Cadbury. a trick question, really. Oh, he's fooled, fooled me. <laughs> so it's, Cadbury, it's Cadbury's caramel in the shape of a bunny, and um, and so consequently, people on the internet have, have, uh, have pointed out, well, surely, and it's about sixty-five p or something for two yeah, of them. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that actually I, exactly the same <laughs> as the Caramel Freddo? Let's oh, it's oh. caramel on the inside, it's dairy milk on the outside. Looks similar. It's maybe a slightly saltier caramel, I'm not sure. But um, attention, Caramel fans, you're, 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 you're paying a little bit over the odds here. Purely purely for the benefit of having a slightly sexier Freddo. And it's dairy, and it's dairy milk as well, so it's the same kind of chocolate. It's very good as well. Yeah, I haven't, be I haven't had one of those before, but the Freddo caramel is, is worth a shot. 15, 15p. 15p. Yeah. So, so you could just buy, you could buy, buy, buy yourself a whole load of Freddos. That 
that is the true meaning of Easter. <laughs> for me. Didn't, didn't Kit Kat do a rabbit thing last year, shaped like a rabbit? Was that's it the Maltese Oh, that's what I'm thinking of, yeah. You see, you don't worry. Of course. That's that a massive Maltese moulded into the shape of a rabbit. It's not massive, it's like those. It's that sort of size. But it was really nice. The Mars Maltese not only is in the shape of a rabbit, not only is an Easter Maltese, but doesn't even have sort of normal Maltese inside. They've had to create some sort of special Maltese paste. Wow. Really, I mean, in the old days, Easter used to be a time for innovation. Easter used to be a time when, when perhaps the chocolate industry would itself be reborn and resurrected. <laughs> and, uh, so really what I'm on the lookout for is new products. So this is a Thornton's yeah, kind of cabbage cream egg. Market. If you wanted some of that tasty cream egg market, um, this is this is the form factor, as they say. Basically, this is a big Thornton's chocolate in an egg shape, isn't it? Yeah, and with a praline filling, mm-hmm. I quite like it. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's okay, it's the most promising so far. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, yeah, I mean, that, that pretty much concludes uh, the Easter, mm. <laughs> the, 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 the Easter news so far. Is it the sounds or the, the way that you can get to the sound? Yeah, the sound, the sounds that the machines made was the first attraction. I like the old Atari 8-bit sounds because it's just, like, there's not even a sound chip. I mean, they just kind of, like, found an extra register <laughs> and was like, okay, let's hook this up to the speakers and, you know, send some ones and zeros out. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's pretty raw. But then once I kind of got over the aesthetic, like joys of the sound or whatever. I really like the way that you could access them in the computers being like, um, you know, the basic interface. And then the fact that they were simple machines and I could wrap my brain around pretty much the whole thing. And assembly language is really not difficult, it's tedious, but I found it much easier than linear algebra and things like this. It's just <laughs> like, this number goes here, that goes there, and I have control over the whole system. So I found that really attractive. So it was a combination of the sounds and the simpleness of the machines, the interface, and then um, moving on to graphics, it was the same thing. I mean, they make really bright colors. It's completely analog, like composite video output. And it just looked really good, projected really big, compared to someone's DVD, which has all like nasty compression Mm. and stuff like that. If you want to make a clear, sharp pixel on the wall, you can't really do it with a DVD. In most cases, you can totally do it with one of these. Mm. So. I guess it was for all those reasons. Had you done much programming before? Because 6502 assembly language is, is harsh, even compared to other assembly languages yeah. that I'm familiar with. Because like, it, it only has eight big registers. Yeah. This is for listening <laughs> to our <laughs> fans. <laughs> 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 this sort of thing. That makes it easier. Does it, 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 it has a and, a and B and Z or something? Is that what I can't actually Yeah, yeah, it's got uh, X, Y, and Z or whatever, and then the accumulator and all that stuff. So it's, but the thing is, it's so, it's, and what, it's just easier. You have less registers and bits to worry about. So, yeah, and did you and did you have an assembly? Were you running an assembler on something like the Ataris, or were you coding it in um, hex by hand? I was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy stuff. Well, for some machines, I would do. Well, first you can do a development on emulators, oh, right, which yeah. is really handy. Um, and in those cases. I don't know, I'd do one or two projects where I would only do it in hex just to like, <laughs> you know, say that I did it, but it was, you know, it's not that pleasant really, so it, it's not my normal mode of 
yeah, working. Um, I was using an assembler. I tried out a bunch, some on the actual machines, because you could get assemblers at the time on this, a cartridge. The kind of dev kit. Right. Yeah. I guess what became like my standard, you know, method or whatever was to use um, DASM. It's like a generic PC-based assembler. It can compile 6502 code, and it runs on your PC, and it's really handy because you just like compile it, you run the thing in the emulator, see if it works. If it doesn't, you haven't, you know, spent like your whole day burning yeah. out problems and stuff. <laughs> if people don't know what assembly language looks like, 6502 assembler <coughs> is what is scrolling down inside the Terminator's field of view in the first Terminator film. Oh, really? Isn't no. it? So, and it's, okay. and it's, so you, you're typing stuff that looks like code, but yeah. it's kind of load A, X, yes. and then like, anyway. Well, I, I think I really like where you're coming from because it's almost as though, um, I mean, I think it's really tough what you're doing, but I really like where you're coming from because when you program on uh, computers, it almost feels a li little bit sort of flabby and sort of, I don't know, it's like sort of a big fat pig sort of sitting between you and what you want to do. And and, it, and, and I like the sort of, I like the fact that you're talking about something that's very direct. I do think it's, it does sound very difficult and um, it reminds me a bit in music of like early music because you know, I'm sort of very into early music which was this thing that, you know, yeah, I... in the 1800s people decided that these instruments were so-called obsolete instruments because they didn't do what was fashionable at the time. I think you make a nice connection between early music and these machines. And uh, it's not coincidence that my minor study in uh, music school was harpsichord. Oh, minor <laughs> in early music, there you go. That's cool. um, and yeah, I think also having a classical music background probably prepares you to be able to sit at a console-looking thing for long periods of time, <laughs> 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 yeah. making very small movements. This is the Tatsuo Miyajima exhibition. Oh. And they're sort of little trees made out of boxes with numbers written on them. How's it work then? So there's loads of these sort of seven segment LED things, but they've all got only four wires coming out of them. And one of those must be ground, and one of those must be power. And then that only leaves two to really control what number they're displaying. Mm. So I'm wondering if they're timers or something, or they're, just, they're receiving clock pulses, or they're sort of passing clock pulses to each other through that network because the amazing thing when you can see it like, and this is most obvious on the sort of 4 by 4 grid there mm. is that there are no other connections going to them and it's not like they're on a matrix yeah. where they're being individually um, addressed and that all they do I think is count down so my guess is that this particular component is designed is a kind of timer chip that with a display on it that is designed to count down. Mm -hmm. from, purely from the way they're interconnected, I'm guessing that when one of them hits zero, it kind of passes that onto the next one and maybe triggers it oh, to start counting down. Yes. But it's not immediately apparent how they're interconnected. Yeah. Just by looking at them. If they are at all, is it possible that they're not connected? Well, but, but when, when you look at the number of wires that are here, how else are they, unless they're all on just some internal clock and just yeah, getting power? Yeah, that's what my guess would be, that it's just an internal clock on each one. Oh, and maybe they're all set and to a different they're all, thing. They're all just set to count down at a different rate. 
and that the wire that it's just a red herring and that, that these metal grids are just structural. Are just power and um, something else. Yeah. We have the component number. I'll read this out. <laughs> it's uh, on, on here. It, it says it's a time EV3, then EV3 is in capitals, dash W, mm. 087C. Time EV3 dash W. Oh. One of them, oh, I've got an 087B here. There's an A here as well, and a C, so that, yeah, so and A, B, and C. See, see, if, see if the Cs are all counting down at the same rate. Oh, wow. Now all we have to do is go to the Matlins catalogue and find out what this component is actually designed to do, and we can work out what, the, um, what all the pins going in and out of them are and actually triggering, make not our own. whether it's all independent. Maybe, and maybe we're just imposing a pattern on something that is Oh, it's always a danger with art. The actual art aspect of this concept is quite um, minimal. It's very much about the electrical engineering. I prefer that. <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know that's, what, that's what we're enjoying about. It reminds me, in fact, I don't know why I didn't think of this before, but it's like, you know, Wordy? Yeah, off words and pictures. He oh, the magic the, E and the... He, he was the mascot of Words of Pictures, okay. the, the boy from space. There's one red one. It's like, um... It's like something from Schindler's List. Um, but you, you sort of imply, or specifically say, on your website that you think that clog dancing maybe has a connection with the Kraftwerk style electronic music. Oh, yeah. You might be surprised by this connection. What are you saying? Yeah. Yeah, yes, well, I just wish to say at this juncture that Caroline and I, we've been doing this clog dancing thing together for years. Caroline's an old friend, she's a musician mm-hmm. and a clog dancer. And we just know, it's like, if you want to have people stay away in droves, put the word clog dancing <laughs> in the programme. So what, when you think of clog dancing, I mean, be completely honest, mm. what sort of springs to mind? You sort of think of, sort of folk and Morris dancing. Yes, you know, exactly, of, exactly. Those kind of things. In my mind, it's sort of slightly soppy, for want of a better term, sort of like bonnets and, mm. and, and sort of cutesy-wootsy. A bit twee. Yeah, yeah, mm. and on a Sunday afternoon. And, uh, and, and you know, there is a whole lot of, uh, clog dancing that um, does that and, and that doesn't particularly interest me but what's interesting about clog Lancashire clog was something that grew up in the mills and it's a really really strange dance when you sort of strip back all that sort of ersatz uh, sort of junk and you mm. actually go back to the original dances they were actually um, so, so, so the women were working in the cotton mills and these mills I mean I went to a working mill they just put on some of the machines they are so loud that you know you can't communicate at all and the only sort of way that they could express themselves was to tap their clogs and they all wooden <laughs> clogs and um, they actually this is what's so strange about it is they actually copied the sounds of the machines and it was almost like um their virtuosity was, was based on how well they could copy the sounds of the machines. But um, yes, yeah, so, so Caroline came to me with this dance and I said, oh my goodness, because as she did the steps, you could actually imagine the machines mm. that mm. they were copying. So we actually went back to the mills and we actually filmed the machines in action and, and recorded them. And then we sort of put together a piece where you can sort of see she's doing that and the machine's doing that. So we were trying That's to great. sort of mm-hmm. make the link again. And um, yeah, and it looked like, I'm sorry, it did look like craft work because the yeah. whole dance, I mean, this was like, this sort of died out in about 1930, this dance. Yeah. Is it industrial it, music? Yeah, yeah, yeah it was so, industrial so music. Yeah. And it was about sort of um, coalescing with the machine, which I think is very much what craft work is about. It's not about fighting it. It's like, we are the robots. It's almost like mm. you can't fight it, so you might as well embrace it. Mm. And, it's, and so it was that. It was that feeling of, here's a worker sort of, who's a sort of unit of 
production in in this overwhelming factory mm. and rather than fighting it she's sort of become part of the factory and is sort of enjoying the fact and they used to go to these free and easies on a weekend and, and sort of show off their machine like dancing and they have to keep their body completely um, rigid and sort of expressionless and honestly it's just like watching um, Wolfgang Fleur or something she has to sort of keep her body completely expressionless and rigid and sort of do these steps and they've all got names like the pick and the up and down which is all the names of the machines wow. and, oh, fantastic. and it's very spooky it's very spooky dance so yes we do that unfortunately uh, you have to explain all that before people buy a ticket. So they just <laughs> they just see the word clog dancing. Hard to get that and in they, a headline. And we, we haven't got overcome that hurdle yet. Is it, I'm interested in it when it's more than just sort of nostalgia and I'm trying to work out why... I'm curious to know why people are so interested in revisiting this stuff actually very soon after its obsolescence. And is it because things are moving so fast? Mm. Is it? It's more than just a comfort blanket, isn't it? Well, I mean, obviously with you, it's sound and the, and the, and the accessibility of the sound. What, what is it that's sort of making everybody want to crave this very recent obsolescence? Mm. I think there's something more than just nostalgia about vinyl and I think it actually goes back to what we were talking about earlier about infrasound and, and about low frequency sounds that CDs just don't pick up. Well basically if I go see a DJ and they're using vinyl I kind of believe that they know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Is that because or it's harder or because they're having to put more energy in or what? Both and because they've actually had to go to the record store they've had to like learn a lot about the type of music they're interested in. Mm. Obviously, they might be a shitty DJ, and that will become evident quite quickly. Mm. Um, someone who has, you know, twenty thousand MP3s and surfs a few blogs every day, and you know, plays a mishmash of, you know, rant, you know, music across the board. It's like really, you can automate that. There's mm. no brain involved. So well, there is. Somebody had to pick. Somebody had to make choices. They still have to make choices, don't they, to do that? I think that. They do have to make choices to turn their computer on. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, you know, open iTunes. But I think that it's, you know, it's not a... It's sort of, it's an... If you see people interacting with a, with a medium that's so... Um, restricted isn't the right word. I'm looking for a better word. Maybe by the end of this podcast I can come up with one. But when you see people, yeah, like, using vinyl, there's just... There's a dedication there that mm -hmm. there isn't on the surface anyway. That's the thing about computers is you can't trust the surface. You don't know what software is running. You don't know how anything came to be. Whereas if someone's using a, a physical, like more physical medium, you kind of all the steps that led up to that person doing what they're mm. doing kind of is, is laid out before you already. There's so much you can do, like the creative space is so huge now. Mm. It's almost like we're sort of clinging hold of the table mm. legs to sort of say, I don't know what to do with this, so I'm going to cling hold to something like you're saying that's got limitations mm. so that I can sort of explore that space. It's like almost when you've got too much, yeah. mm. you kind of feel a little bit... You know, A, that you don't know what to do with it, and quite often, that if you sort of throw in all the bells and whistles, you end up with a sort of blandness of sort of over-egging it all. Mm. I can't yeah. explain well, I, I think there's, yeah. there's something very interesting to the idea of giving yourself constraints, and, and even going back, even just a few years, to when things were harder, and that opening up more creative opportunity, because now you're going to have to solve problems that if you gave yourself every tool in the world, 
you wouldn't have to worry about, mm. but what would you make? You know, I, I think there is a massive element of creativity coming from difficulty and coming from constraints. Mm. I wonder if that's why we, we go back to things that made our lives more difficult, because we like them because they give us challenges that we then enjoy solving. But I also wonder if it's almost like almost a form of special pleading that all us sort of geeky people have been trying to say for ages, actually what we're creating is a cultural product, we're part of culture, and it's almost like wanting to feel that we're not outsiders who are just about the technology, that we actually care about the aesthetic. And then I knew that you did games, so I brought this. That's so, awesome. Yeah, and that's beautiful, isn't it? Oh, look. How exciting. Look at it. That's brilliant. So that's a grandstand Astro Wars. Yeah. Do we need to plug it in? No, it goes. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Oh, I used to be really good at this. Oh, did you? Oh, right. oh, so right. I'll, <laughs> I'll throw that in. Yeah, oh, actually, I was. Uh, I, 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 I represented um, at my my school at county level. Oh, on this. Has <laughs> oh, it, it started? No. Oh, here we go. Oh, it's very sturdy, isn't it? Good, yeah. Good piercing, it? Yeah. So that's oh. a grandstand Astro Wars because I know that you're into computer games. Mm. And the thing about me is that I'm really quite geeky. But I'm not into computer games at all. Yeah. In the sense that I love to look at them. I think they're lovely things. But I've got such bad coordination issues. Mm. The same reasons that I don't drive. Mm. I don't play computer games. And so but I think it's just a. I'll switch it off. It's a beautiful <laughs> piece of technology mm. because. Um, because uh, I, I, you know, you could just sort of be into these things, just go, oh, wasn't it lovely? Or we all had these when we were kids. Actually, I'm sufficiently old to have been a little bit too old to want one of these because I was born in 66 and this is about 81 but I actually love it as a piece of technology um, and what I love is the sort of cheekiness of it in the um, I think they're called vacuum vacuum fluorescence so they weren't proper LCDs mm. it was like this sort of halfway house between an LED and an LCD mm-hmm. and, so, and they were just sort of things that glowed brightly and to get colours I might be wrong but I think it's got the trick here where they just put coloured filters on it. Some gel yeah. colours. Yeah. And they've even put a Fresnel lens because they couldn't afford uh, to make it very big. They just put a great big lens. But it's beautiful. It's you know, amazing, it's awesome. isn't it? And also, it's about the level of gameplay that some of you with my particular <laughs> problem with clumsiness can, can deal with. And whenever it's in the kitchen, where it's where it lives, that's why the batteries were down the other day, everybody wants to play it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just so, such a lovely thing. Will you be bringing back the cassette DJ? Oh, I was hoping you were going to ask them every time. The, the Beige World the cassette, uh, cassette Jockey, jockey yeah. Championships. Tell, Maybe. Me, tell us about that. Okay, so that was just... Um, this was when I was living in Chicago before I'd moved to London, and influenced by my experiences doing the, the DMC Championships, um, which are this, like, turntablism mm. competition. And I thought it would be funny to do one with cassette tapes, so I kind of made up some rules and I was living um yeah some friends of mine and I were living like in a really rundown kind of warehousey type place we basically made our own little venue there where we could have shows and stuff so we just put it on um on our ground floor and uh yeah it it did really well so basically it's like a knockout um performance competition we have judges and the rules where you could use a maximum of six audio cassette devices <laughs> and um, you had to use pre-recorded or like published cassette tapes because mm-hmm. we wanted to keep people from making all this crazy stuff and then just dubbing just it to a blank cassette and then yeah. like, you know, just playing that. So 
tried to emphasize like real-time interaction with the tape. And yeah, people came from all over the states. I mean, we had competitors from Boston and Detroit, like hometown in Chicago, and, and it was really, really nice. So we did it for two years, and then I moved to London, and I've thought about doing it here, and there's always like a few people who ask, yeah, but there's not to. enough like kind to. of critical. And so do people have exotic moves, you know, like where they kind of splice you <laughs> under, know, under the lights? Oh yeah, yeah. Behind the middle of a, in the middle of the set. Yeah, there was. I think well, for exotic moves, let's see. Well, there was one fellow who, yeah, he spliced the tape and then, <laughs> then sort of stretched it out between. I don't know. It was just two pieces of wood or something. And then he had already built a. Um, uh, like a little Walkman thing, but he'd remove the, the playhead and mounted it on a little rod. Oh. And then he was scratching basically nice. back oh, and forth cool. over the tape while I he was manipulating the, the fader. And there was one guy who, he his entire set consisted of ex- material exclusively from uh, Billy Joel cassettes. <laughs> 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 and he had like... A lot of different Walkmans, some that had speakers and microphones on them, so he'd sort of arrange them to give feedback in different ways and was just kind of crazily turning them on and off in different patterns and stuff. (laughs) And there were people who did, yeah, like real-time tape loops. I mean, there were people who, you know, there was one fellow who just dressed up in a clown outfit, like rainbow wig and everything, and just played like two unlimited tapes and pumped his fist. And he... (laughs) place third you know <laughs> <laughs> do you link to the kinetic affair from your website um, I can do I mean I've just, I've got, I'm just doing a very small thing <laughs> on one of the stands there but I can certainly put a link on when on the site it's year? in early February 4th to the 7th is I think. it the same place that it was last year I think so, yes. Okay. And where yes. is that? Because <laughs> yes, everyone it's, knows. It's, it's P2, which is underneath Marylebone, which is underneath the University of Westminster building yeah. on Marylebone High Street, just up from, just uh, along from Bay, just east of Baker Street. Is P2 like the second parking floor? Because that sounds like... Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Yeah, and the website has lift buttons on it, so I think you're... You're, like, you're I don't going know what, to the... I don't know, I, I don't know, know like around the building and down some stairs and like around the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's half yeah. the fun of I'm, I'm getting there. It sounds like we'll all be at Connecticut in February then. And my big date, if it goes ahead, which we think it will do, June the 1st, as the sun is setting, I'm playing in Battersea Power Station for a show called Electricity and Ghosts. It's being curated by Art Hertz, and um, yeah, that's all I can tell you at the moment. Yeah. So I'm just doing one little bit in that. And okay. if we want to keep up to date with you, we can go to your website, yes, sarahanglis.com, or you're on Twitter as well, aren't you? I am, yes. You're, what is it? Is it Sarah Anglis? Sarah Anglis. Okay. And Paul V. Davis. I don't have a blog and I'm not on Twitter. And mm. But if people want to find out a bit more about you, they just can go Google. to post-data.org. Yeah, yeah. But there's, I mean, I have a couple really poorly taken care of websites. Um, and it's been one of those, like, every year I have a New Year's resolution to make a decent personal website. I haven't done it yet. So the best thing to do is just Google my name and uh, a few links will come up. You should, you should go back in time rather than trying to catch up with this. <laughs> you should set up a bulletin board. That oh, yeah. yeah. Doing yeah, yeah. Yes. You should really have one of those. <laughs> Sarah Anglis uh, and Paul B. Davis, thank you very, very much for your time. It's been it's been a really fun episode and we've, uh, we've for it's once, we've had a theme. We've talked about music all, yeah. all the time. It's been, it's been brilliant. It's been great.
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There's a kind of music bed here. <laughs> I don't know, you can, you can edit out me. Imagine you can hear the bed. So there's a kind of music going, don't like computers. Style oh, yeah, definitely. Is that. I'm on. I'm in computers, is the word. I'm in computers. I'm on the short way. Anyways. like that. And then imagine it goes quiet, and then I think everyone should just sort of say, bye now, bye, we're going. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. 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 That was a rehearsal. Oh, um, not to me. It's just a goodbye, sort of a, a group goodbye. A bit like they do at the end of Blue Peter. A lot like that. Bye. Bye. bye.